Welcome to Cape and Ray Hall, nestled in the beautiful landscapes between England's national parks. As a Bible school, we offer short-term courses aimed at fostering your spiritual growth and living in a community. Our historic manor house has something for everyone. You can enjoy indoor and outdoor adventures. Connect with students from around the world and learn how to deepen your relationship with Jesus Christ. Search Cape and Ray England for more information. The Profile You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome along to The Profile today with myself, Justin Briley, here on Premier Christian Radio. And uh, it's always a delight to be joined by a friend on The Profile today. It's Patrick Forbes. But before we meet him, just a reminder that you can find The Profile on its own podcast at premierchristianradio.com forward slash the profile and it's brought to you each week in partnership with premier christianity magazine and if you'd like a free sample copy of the latest edition of the magazine you can go to their website as well that's premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample a room full of elephants that's the autobiography of patrick forbes my first 80 years in the church patrick forbes is a priest a broadcaster and a clown We'll hear all about that. And Patrick has been a much-loved voice for many years for listeners on Premier Christian Radio. Um, he's presented some 700 editions of Traveller's Tales and many, many thoughts of the day along the way as well. And, uh, and we've known each other for, for probably pretty much all of my broadcasting career, that's for sure. Um, Patrick, welcome along to The Profile. How are you doing? Thank you very much, Justin. I'm fine. It's all the others. <laughs> This is a real treat for me because I don't always get to interview people that I actually know, uh, at least personally, at some level. And um, and uh, gosh, the legend of Patrick Forbes goes back a long way. But in reading the book, I understood who you are sort of in a, in a fuller way. Um, and, and it was well, a real treat. If you treat. found out who I am, could you tell me, please? <laughs> <laughs> that was great. Um, we'll come to the title of the book in a moment's time. Um what I, I've, I've always wanted to do this to you, though, because you've done it to so many other people, which is start with the same question you often have begun Traveller's Tales with, which is tell us about life growing up and when you first bumped into God. Well, almost the nearest thing, I guess, was um, my great uncle, John. Um, he was a vicar in, in Herefordshire and uh, at a little tiny village called um, Much Dew Church. And I think because I was born just before the war, the, the last, the Second World War, <laughs> um, my my parents probably thought I might be a little bit safer in Herefordshire than in London, and um, so I spent some months there, I guess. And I was very very little, probably only between one and two. And um, he he had a great bushy beard, uh, did my great uncle John. And we called him the Boncle Man, which was sort of a corruption of the French L'Oncle Jean. <laughs> and I probably couldn't say L'Oncle Jean, so Boncle Man did. And he was a bachelor and he had a, a slightly scary Welsh housekeeper called Mrs. Taylor. <laughs> and Mrs. Taylor made for my, my great uncle John a milk pudding every day for his lunch, which is why I can't look a milk pudding in the face now. But he, he would allow me to, to sit on his knee and watch him um, fill his pipe. 
in his mm. tip of a study. Um, actually, I think that's probably where I learned how to make a tip out of a study, <laughs> looking around me here. <laughs> I'm still working on it, trying to clear it up. Anyway, um, I, I suppose, I'm, I imagine, I, I, I definitely was baptised there. And I think probably by my grandfather on my mother's side, who I never sort of actually met to talk to, um, he was, uh, he eventually he became provost of Aberdeen and um, he apparently was offered the job of being bishop of Aberdeen and his wife said if you if you accept that I'm leaving you <laughs> <laughs> so for, for hundreds of years on my mother's side there's always been a priest mm. or minister in the family but mm. um, I suppose I, I'd have I'd have been baptized there, but it wasn't an encounter with God in the way that you're probably asking. Um, after that, uh, I guess I was taking the church in Burford where we stayed in a fr friend of my mother's house for the duration of the war. And I was taken to St. John the Baptist in Burford, which is a very fine church. And um, if I didn't go to church, I wasn't given allowed to get a, a choice of comics after the service. <laughs> so, of course, I, I, I was a very, uh, um, you know, disciplined attendant, as you can imagine. But I, I, I didn't know about how to behave in church. I'm not sure I do now, really. <laughs> and a voice was heard during one of the vicar's sermons one Sunday. I know where he got that. It was from Lift Up Your Hearts. <laughs> <laughs> on the wireless oh, uh, there's my first sort of in evidence of interest yes. in religious broadcasting and uh and there church, you go. i guess that, that's that's great and and i'm sure it, the same goes today many pastors and vicars still steal things from the radio <laughs> that they hear um t tell us about this this book then a room full of elephants um it's your autobiography really and uh i mean how do you compact 80 years plus into so many pages what's um you know and and how do you have the recall as well did you keep a diary or something because no. I'm, I'm amazed at the the, the memory that you seem yeah. to exhibit in yeah. the book I'm, it's very interesting this because i've always characterized my memory as being full of things that didn't matter a scrap <laughs> you know like the, the gross registered tonnage of the first ship i worked on as a radio officer 8617.23 tons Wow. Or the average thickness of electrical transformer laminations, you know, and all the things that should be there, like a good grasp of theology, how to behave and um, common courtesies and so on. Probably, there's probably no room for them because it's already full up with nonsense songs and, <laughs> you know, dull things like that. But as to how I came to write it, I, I retired sort of ill in the, in the round about 1998 something like that i had, had something called it was discovered subsequently i had something called hemochromatosis which is where the the body doesn't process iron or metabolize iron so it builds up in joints and eventually kills you if you're not uh, diagnosed with it and these symptoms for me working for the mission to seafarers in the late 1990s was that the, the church we worked in, the offices in London, in a Wren church near Candler Street, <coughs> St. Michael Paternoster Royal. And it was, we were in the tower and my office was on the third floor. There was no lift except for stationary. And I couldn't squeeze in. I thought about it once or twice. And when I went to this job, I could run up those stairs, no trouble at all. But my last 18 months, I could barely stagger up those stairs. And I couldn't think why it was. 
Um, maybe we'll come to it later in the story, mm. you know. Mm. But um, I, I suppose I've had all this time <laughs> in inverted commas retirement, which I don't think actually is true <laughs> for the clergy. They don't retire. No. Um, you know, they bore people to death or bore themselves to death, I think. Um, and so I, I began to think about writing uh, another book. I'd written a book about clowns and fools of the gospel in 1988, I think it was, and co-wrote two books, one about clowning in church and one a sort of comic book about the church as a stocking filler for Gerald's publishers in Norwich but I'd co-written those two books so I thought right I'll have one more book and I wasn't sure what to what to write about really and I wrote about half a book and thought no this is all wrong <laughs> what am I doing so dunked all that and, and started again and by this time I I've had more time if you like to sort of observe the the weird activities of the Church of England and I thought well a room for relevance might be you know I might write some of that down Mm. And it really only sort of comes up in the last chapter, really, when I have one or two wild ideas about what, what's going on, what's going wrong, what we might do about it. But, but um, you know, if anyone gets slightly weary reading the book, they should thank, their, thank God that actually the publisher said, um, this, this is just too long. <laughs> you know, um, I'll... I'll would you be happy for someone to sort of edit it, you know, and sort of cut it down? So I said, absolutely. So the, the, a very nice sort of cousin second times moved or I don't know, something like that. The daughter of an, a cousin of mine who, who works um, as a reader in the church, wing, she, she took it on herself to edit it and she took about 25,000 words out. Okay, so yeah. I put about five or seven thousand words back, probably not the same one. And she <laughs> she did cut a lot of the family stuff. She said, yeah. "You want to know who you you need to know who you're writing this for," mm -hmm. which is a good question. It's yes. like uh, you know, what's the point of this interview? Yes, discuss. Yes. Um, and uh, so so it, it is shorter than it, than it turned out. Yeah. Well, I I thoroughly enjoyed reading it oh, and getting a bit more of a. A background on on the many different things you've done such as finding yeah. out that you you know in, in your early years worked on trawler fishing boats and mm -hmm. then um you know ocean going vessels and mm -hmm. this was all part of an early career you had as someone operating the the radios and so on on board ships and things and um, what you know what was that life like i mean quite well salty sea dogs and so on that you were sailing with it was probably a world away from the <laughs> parish ministry you later ended up in absolutely but um enormous fun i mean it was if you like it was a sort of unofficial university education where i instead of having to pay fees i i got paid about a pound <laughs> a day when i first went to sea and it all happened because a guy who wasn't necessarily a great friend of mine came up to me my last day at school last week in school or so or last term in school 1956 to say patrick how would you like to spend three weeks on a trawler out of grimsby in august and i i as i tend to do i said yes without giving it a second thought i thought what fun you know that, that that's how you've your life has gone it appears by saying yes to people without really yes. thinking through the consequences yes. exactly yeah. Yeah, and, and particularly not asking what the consequences <laughs> might be. And that was, you know, we had spent three weeks on this trawler, which had a very interesting wartime history, in fact. 
before being wrecked off the coast of Iceland uh, after I'd left it. Um, <laughs> and uh, going up the east coast of, of probably Scotland, Skipper suddenly said, you know, not to me in particular, he said, I can't, make, I can't get the radio telephone to work. And because I was a, a sort of bit of, you know, I'd started building uh, amplifiers and things like that and tape recorders and things. I said, you know, shall I have a go? You know, and he said, yes, here's the instruction book, get on with it. And I made it work. And at the end of the trip, the guy in charge of radio for that uh, fleet of trawlers said, if you want to go and train as a radio operator, we'll give you a job. And I, you know, never thought about that before and didn't think about it for very long. I mean, I was sort of hoping to be some sort of journalist like my mother eventually. So I said, yeah, right. So I went on a course and mm. found myself in the Merchant Navy. Yeah. And and learned the now perhaps lost art of Morse code and all the rest of I it. I can you still know. read it at 25 words a minute. Amazing. Amazing. And, um, <laughs> and it's radio amateurs use it. And because everything's gone digital and um, with satellites and things, it's all very fine so long as everything works. Yes, exactly. But there, who knows? There may be a t- point when we need to call up Patrick Forbes because we can only <laughs> <laughs> using Morse code. Yeah. Um, I, I, and then, and then, of course, w- one fascinating thing was that that it was actually on a transatlantic um, boat that you were uh, sort of helping with. That the the idea was first put to you of priesthood, which had never entered your mind really no, at that point, had absolutely it? Absolutely not. Tell us the story of of who who suggested this to you. Well, I was working m- most of the time in the merchant navy. You, for your first six months, you have to do six months with a on a two operator ship, so you don't you know, caused the world to collapse in your first six months. And um, then I I worked on Tate and Lyle's bulk sugar carriers, which was like a bus service, really, going down the, you know, it's idyllic, really, thinking back. I mean, apart from the weather <laughs> and sometimes the food. The, um, you know, we were down in the Caribbean about every six, seven or eight weeks, mm. loading four or 5,000 tonnes of sugar and bringing it back to this country. Wow. So I'm responsible for vast swathes of tooth decay in the, <laughs> you know, in the population. And occasionally we took out guests of the company. There was, you know, the odd cabin spare. And we took a, a, a USPG missionary called Robert Nind, N-I-N-D. And we took him out to a parish in, in Jamaica. And on subsequent trips, I had a word with the chief steward to see if we could make up some food parcels for him of of typically english foods like you know cooper's oxford marmalade or kellogg's cornflakes which would have been available in jamaica but you'd have had to pay an awful price for them because they'd have been exported all the way from from this country and um before i finished with tate and lyle's ships and before i came ashore i i one day got an airmail from him and uh, in the course of which he said i course of lots of other stuff he said uh, i look forward to one day to seeing your name amongst those uh, to be ordained in the church of england i mean this was as weird as someone coming up to me and saying <laughs> how do you like to spend three weeks on a trawler and you know now what how things happen yes. and i never thought about this in my life you know wow and um there you go anyway uh i came ashore to do a uh to do a first class license and uh, stayed with some fellow students in Wandsworth 
and studied at Norwood Technical College in South London. One day, one of my fellow students, who was madly in love with a, a young maiden, said to me, how would you like to make up a foursome? My girlfriend is staying with somebody called Annette and uh, it'd be great to go on the student union dance down at uh, Lambeth Town Hall in Brixton. So, of course, I said yes, mm. you know, and um, I hid my 15 quid Austin 7 round the corner from <laughs> from her house because I'd crashed it about six weeks earlier on a <laughs> one in six hill. It still had grass growing out of the roof. And I thought if her father sees this, <laughs> he's not going to let his daughter out in this any more than I would. Um, anyway, he, he said, you must be back at 11 o'clock, you know, on the mm -hmm, dot. Mm-hmm. And um, so off we went to the dance, which was awful. <laughs> and and one of one of uh, the other guys said, I "Tell you what, we know a very nice place for coffee." So we left the dance, and this nice place for coffee it was in Richmond, which is you know from Austin Seven, a day's journey right across mm. South London. And we just got into this nice coffee bar by the river, and time for one coffee, and it was time to go all the way back to <laughs> South London, um, well, to up and Orwood to to uh, deliver safely deliver my my girlfriend or Annette my partner yeah. for the evening and um going across Wandsworth Common the the engine sort of died and the oh, lights no. went out and I got out and rummaged around in under the bonnet and um made it all work and we got there three minutes after 11 o'clock <laughs> and <laughs> um that was the beginning of all kinds of things and I you know Clearly, Annette was the girl for me, mm. and we sort of uh, got together. And while um, while I was still studying, went to church at her local church in uh, Norwood, and uh, people started saying to me, "You know, you ought to get yourself ordained." I mm. thought, "Oh God, here we go again. What's <laughs> going on here?" Anyway, I went back to see, and it was clear we were going to get get engaged and get married. But it was also clear that Annette wasn't going to get married to a sailor. Mm -hmm. And I, I understand that. I'm surprised any marriages survive people being away at sea for long periods of time. And so that's that was and that. That, that was how it all began. And, yes. and Annette's, you know, oh gosh, how how many years have you been married now, Patrick? Uh, um, hang on, what's fifty nine years this Wednesday? There you go. Gosh, well, it'll. That, that'll be lovely to celebrate the... No, the Queen's got to stay alive until the next year so she can send me a, a card on our 60th. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, the, I mean, and, and in a way, though, the sailing has stayed with you. You, you oh, still yeah. have, you've loved to, to go sailing on smaller boats mm. um, in, in the intervening years that yeah. you tell a few stories of scrapes you've had in the book with, with yeah. various boats of, of various kinds. Yeah. Um, and and maybe we'll we'll you know if we've got time we'll get to some of that later on. But the, the you you were evidently very technically minded. You you sort of were good with transistors and you know bits of kit. Actually, I don't like transistors. Oh, I okay. like comforting valves with with which glow, and okay. then you know they're going to be all right. Transistors <laughs> just lie there, all inert, and dare yeah. you to imagine what's wrong with them. <laughs> anyway you you were you were quite technically gifted yeah, and yeah. and in a sense you understood the mechanics of these hmm. things in fact one of your your early jobs after meeting Annette and um was sort of in, in a sort of recording studio wasn't it and doing, yes, doing bits and yes, pieces I around had a that. wonderful job which which I mean I had two jobs when I came ashore uh 
uh, one was with a telephone answering machine company and I couldn't understand why I was, I'd, I'd applied for a job sent by from the labor exchange, uh, a job as a bench fitter, eight pounds, 10 shillings or eight pounds, 50 a week, eight pounds, 10 shillings. It would have been then. And, um, the guy kept asking me weird questions. And Mr. Matthews, he said, do you like meeting people? Do you like traveling? What's all this to do with being a bench fitter? <laughs> so I walked out of that with a 15 pounds, 10 shillings a week job as, as a installation and service engineer. Of course, there was a catch. I was the only, only the second such person for the whole of the United Kingdom. Oh gosh! And in 14 months, I drove 34,000 miles. And that was just the driving. It wasn't dealing with no. enraged customers. The <laughs> machine had fallen in love with another <laughs> machine and stopped, you know, kept the lines busy. <laughs> but then I, mean, I got it, this lovely job in, in a recording studio. Yes, yes. And the, you, 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 I, I, there's a great story about you recording the sound effects for some newfangled device that would play oh, the Mellotron. Yes, ah, sound effects. God, yes, which was quickly we never had to do. by by more modern technology in terms of synthesizers and things. But hmm. but at the time, this was cutting edge. And and um, yes, you, you tell us the story of when you had to sort of rescue a production of Oh What a Lovely War. Um, <gasps> Yes. Well, um, Oh, Oh, What a Lovely War was a fantastic uh, show. And having said, I say that without having actually seen it. (laughs) But I'm told it's wonderful. But it's heavily dependent, uh, massively dependent on sound effects. So our studio got the job of of constructing, designing and building and installing a completely idiot, fail-safe, you know, system. And we butchered three Ferragraph tape machines and uh, the chief engineer at IBC Studios designed this system whereby you had three lots of tapes, all with the same sound effects going on. But in between each sound effect, there was a foil, piece of foil tape. Mm. And there was a micro switch, which when it was told to by the tape, if one or other was behind, it would bring them all up to the same space and then they'd start off again, you know. Mm. So it was wonderful. And I was on standby duty during one evening at the studio because there was a big session on in one of the studios. And I got this panic call from the Lyric Theatre, I think it was, saying, the system's failed. Can you come, come, come down? The theatre's filling up, you know. So I jumped in a taxi with a toolkit and went down to the theatre and everyone was panicking. <laughs> And the one thing I learned at IBC Studios was don't panic. <laughs> <laughs> and... Uh, um, I just asked everyone to just vanish Mm. and just leave me some space and quiet to sort it. And um, which I did. And, uh, and they got away, you know, they got, got on stage on time. It opened at the right and nobody would have had a clue that there was (laughs) any been, had been any problem at all. I can't remember even what the fault was. doesn't matter. (laughs) But anyway, sort of saved the day. Wouldn't it be nice if they gave me a ticket to see the show? Which they didn't. (laughs) (laughs) I'll see it one day. (laughs) Yes. Maybe still time. Um, I I mean, that's all, you know, preemptive really of your career in broadcasting, which also involved inevitably as, as it does for most broadcasters who are, working you know at the uh, at the grindstone some technical you know close shaves and that sort of thing but we'll come to that I first of all want to talk about you know wh- when did you finally answer this this nagging persistent call to priesthood and and what what did that look like as you started to train and uh, oh. uh, you know with well with a family mean, as we, well. we've talked a little bit about the studio which was so enjoyable uh, when I went for the interview I felt obliged to say 
to to the interviewing panel there that there there was an outside chance that I might be accepted for training, you know, for ordination. And they either didn't hear me say that or they thought it was so fanciful it would never happen. <laughs> but, um, you know, I got involved with the church where Annette and I were married, which was her church. And the vicar there was a lovely, lovely man called Michael Percival Smith. And I'm sure he probably encouraged me. And I thought, well, you know, I'll, I'll fill up all the paperwork and send it up to church house. And I had to list my academic qualifications which were very few. I mean, I'd done only six O-levels. Um, I'd got fed up with school and left before A-levels and had gone to sea. And um, anyway, I put in what I'd done and so on. I, I wish I'd kept it. I got a funny letter from them saying, Dear Mr. Forbes, try as we might, we've been unable to assess your academic, <laughs> your technical qualifications in academic terms. <laughs> So I thought, well, yes, fine. And so what? You know, anyway, I went off to a selection. I, yes, I, in those days, I mean, today, if you want, if you're, if you think you're called to the ministry in the Church of England, the number of people you have to see and probably the paperwork you have to do mm. is unbelievable. Mm. I, I didn't see anyone uh, except my bishop, who was mm. the Bishop of Croydon, a guy called John Taylor Hughes, who saw me at his club. Mm. gentleman's club somewhere <laughs> off Trafalgar Square, Northumberland <laughs> Avenue, I think it was. And I cannot for the life of me remember what we talked about. And that was it. You know, that was it. Yeah. I, I got um, sent to um, a selection conference. There you go. Which was weird. I'm sure. It was very so, strange. For, for some strange reason, they let you through, Patrick. Yeah. yeah. And... <laughs> <laughs> yes, because one of the selectors... Uh, went ill before he got to me i'm sure of that <laughs> yeah there's a great story of, of this sort of slightly scary personality who yeah, fortunately man, was, wasn't around by the time you were no. being grilled um but but i mean this this led on obviously to um training and so on um you you struggled initially to find a college didn't you but you did find one yes. eventually they they didn't seem to colleges i've applied for seemed terribly keen to have graduates mm. you, know, you know proper people <laughs> and and um so the first type place i tried custom where the principal was robert runcy <laughs> who you would go on to work under uh, later yes on. much later on and i yeah. was never quite sure if he remembered he turned <laughs> me down he said you, you probably know it's only in very rare cases to be accept non-graduates so i suggest you try chichester <laughs> So I went back furious about this, you know, because, you know, every journey in a 1929 Austin 7 was an epic and a, yes. an achievement. You know, it should have let me on, in just on, you know, the fact that I'd got there. Anyway, the next place was um, Westcott House, frightfully nice place in, in um, where my vicar had trained mm. and one of his curates too, Westcott House in Cambridge. So we got an interview there and... The college knew in advance because I told them that Annette and I would be staying with friends in Cambridge. And while I was allowed in for interview to see round play, Annette was never asked. Mm. And the strange man in charge, a guy called Peter Walker, who went on to become a bishop, many of them do. <laughs> uh, he said, uh, well, he said, you, you probably know that supposing we were to offer you a place, you'd have to live apart from your wife for your first year. <laughs> I told him exactly what he could do with that and, and left. Um, 
Uh, but finally, we found a place that welcomed the married state and made and made provision for it. At yes. Lincoln, with Alan Webster, who and became Dean of St. Paul's and Dean of Norwich. Absolutely splendid person. Yeah. yeah. Uh, do, do you think things have changed significantly since those days in the Church of England? Is, is it, I mean, is there still an emphasis on you have to have a specific type of education and that sort of thing? Or do you think it's it's a bit easier for people? I don't to, know. To I forward? mean, the joke joke was on the Church of England in so many ways because... At the end of end of my two years at Lincoln, I had done all the examinations, 13 examination papers, um, and wrote to my bishop as courtesy to require that I should to, to ask him permission to leave and to go to a parish. He wrote back and said, no, you're a non-graduate. You must, you must stay there for another year. So I wrote back and said, actually, there isn't a three-year course here. Do you really want me to sit through all that <laughs> awful stuff again? <laughs> You know, so he 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 compromised and said, "All right, well, you can go in three months and be ordained at Advent. <laughs> Just use your three months to do some reading, which was lovely." I don't suppose I read any theology for those three months. I <laughs> caught up on sort of real literature, the, the normal world. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, look, I, I, you asked about what, how different it might be yes, now. Yes. I don't really know. I do think there's been a terrible shift in the sense that. Um, now, in those days, you, you you had to go and do two jobs as a curate somewhere. Mm. Now you just do one. Right. And I think that's a huge error of judgment because the shock of going from theological college or a, even a theological course mm. to, to, to into a parish. Yes. I, w- I would judge that you need still need quite you, a long time. I was about eight eight years probably. Yeah. And you, idiot you, curate, well, yeah. We'll, we'll talk about being dropped in the deep end of parish mm. ministry in the next section of the programme. You're listening to, uh, I was about to say Traveller's Tales, but that would not, <laughs> not be true. Because well, it I, is in a I, way. I, 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 it's a very similar sort of feel today on the show. <laughs> it's the profile, but it's with Patrick Forbes, who has, of course, on Premier Christian Radio, presented Traveller's Tales for many years, some 700 episodes of that. And we'll talk about your broadcasting career in the next section of the show, Patrick. But we're talking about uh, My First 80 Years in the Church is the subtitle of Patrick's new book, A Room Full of Elephants. It's the story of his life, his ministry, and indeed um, some of the unusual things that he's done, including clowning, which I want to get to as well, Patrick, in the course of today's show. So uh, do join us again on the other half of a quick break. We'll be back very shortly. Holier than thou. Radical. Delusional. Ignorant. Perfect. It's time to challenge stereotypes about Christians, and Premier Christianity is leading the way. Transform your perceptions, broaden your horizons, open your mind to wide-ranging views. Read interviews with politicians, theologians, and TV presenters. Discover the breadth of the Christian spectrum. Be provoked, react, inspired, and informed. Get the print magazine and full online access for just £4.95 a month. Subscribe today at premierchristianity.com. Premier Christianity magazine. The bigger picture. The Profile. You're listening to Premier Christian Radio. Welcome back to the second part of this week's edition of The Profile. I'm Justin Briley, and I'm joined this week by Patrick Forbes, priest, broadcaster and clown. Before we continue talking about his new autobiography, A Room Full of Elephants, just a reminder that you can find today's profile as a podcast at premierchristianradio.com forward slash the profile. 
And the podcast is brought to you every week in, in partnership with Premier Christianity magazine. So if you'd like a free sample copy of the latest edition of the mag, do go to their website at premierchristianity.com forward slash free sample. Um, Patrick Forbes, we were just coming to the point where you had been ordained um, and we're going to have to skip some some elements of this um, for the sake of time. But um, a pretty significant place that you ministered was Thamesmead. Just tell us a little bit about Thamesmead, because it was in a way uh, a, new, a fairly new sort of place, wasn't it? Uh, and you were developing a fairly new kind of ministry there in some ways. Well, it was a huge area of ground on the south bank of the Thames below Woolwich, between Woolwich and Erith, the Plumstead and Erith marshes, including some uh, Woolwich Arsenal Ministry of Defence ground, and the GLC and Greenwich and Bexley boroughs were developing this as a town of the 21st century for 60,000 people, mostly being moved out of from slum clearance, um, mostly, again, in the east end of London, which got so heavily blitzed. And um, I'd been working just for about two and a half years or so in... Uh, in Somerset, which was very sleepy <laughs> and hugely overchurched, I reckoned. <laughs> and so I wrote to Southwark Diocese and said, have you got any interesting jobs going? And Bishop John Robinson got in touch and said, well, there's this parish at Kidbrook I'd like you to go and see. So up we came to, to look at Kidbrook and we, we were not hugely impressed because when we asked the church warden where our tiny son of about 18 months might might you know sleep oh he said i think the last baby slept in his pram in the in the in the hall <laughs> well we thought that was a not too welcoming so mm. we asked john robinson if there anything else we could look at before we drove back to somerset and he said have a look at uh, thamesmead and the abbey wood estate and so we we, we trolled down there and the abbey wood estate had been there i think about 10 years um, for about it's about an estate for about ten thousand people and Thamesby was going to eventually surround it more or less on three sides. And uh, Thamesby was just a massive building site. And um, so we, we, we opted for Thamesmead. <laughs> and, and yes, and, and spent a fruitful time. In nine Moonstone. years, nine years. We arrived with the first 20 families mm. and um, left, I think, when there were about 17,000 people there. Gosh. And yeah. uh, the, the fa fabulous thing was that the Bishop of Woolwich um, probably was his uh, boss, the Bishop of Southwark, had knocked all manner of church heads together and said, let us work cooperatively. Let us plan cooperatively uh, to work and witness together at Thamesmead. So he got the Anglican Church, the Methodist Church, the Roman Catholic Church, the United Reformed Church, i.e. Presbyterian and Congregationalists, mm. um, and all to work together. The people who wouldn't work with us were the Baptists, alas, which, which I, I think was a mm. terrible shame. Mm. Anyway, so uh, we we moved there um, for Coraline Walk. They've pulled it down now, I think, which is a shame. Mm. Um, very nice flat. And uh, I was also involved on the Abbey Wood Estate because the vicar there left. So I was sort of nominally, notionally in charge, and and the beginnings of Thamesmead. Yeah. And uh, I wouldn't have missed it for anything. I really <laughs> would not. It was 
it was just one of those marvelous places which if you'd really thought very hard about it you'd probably say said no to mm. and i met recently one of the guys there who's an anglican priest and um he's been told by priests that uh you know, when they hear that he works at Thamesbury, they say, how on earth could you go and work there? Mm. You know, people have been put off going to work there. Um, But it was one of the most stimulating and demanding places I've ever been in my life. Yes. And what was so so much fun was because there's no history Mm. tradition, we had to invent history tradition very, very quickly. And my role eventually became sort of, when the team was established, which was some years after I got there, had to be legally established, you see, um, ecumenical team, I was made up to team vicar responsible for community development, mm. which was a, a dream job because <laughs> it was, I'd call it a ministry of mad ideas. Yes. <laughs> and uh, so what did we need to start with? We needed a means of people knowing what on earth was there. So I started a sort of awful community newspaper which somebody said, this is so awful, we'll offer to print it for you and it will look better immediately, which was great. Um, and that, I, I looked after that for about, well, till I left really. Yeah, yeah. Thames Insight. And, um, and, you know, helping playgroups to, to form, mm. helping the community association to be born, mm. uh, working with other uh, caring professions like social services like the health mm. services mm. education the police we've helped form a something called a community workers group where all of these people who were getting ground down by the sheer mm. um massive volume of need there because people were moving from comfortable if slightly slightly grim housing uh in friendly areas with cheap street markets and jobs mm. into a place which was Parker Morris standard council housing mm. um, and therefore rents to match. And uh, well, there's been huge redundancies in the Woolwich area due to AI being taken over and asset strip. Um, and, uh, you know, no street markets near them, near them Woolwich. Sure. And, and, I mean, in that sense, it was a difficult patch and there there, there was, you know, a certain amount of crime and, and that sort of thing that you had to contend with. I mean, you tell very, you know, personal story as well in the book of um, sad loss of a, um, a pregnancy uh, by Annette. Um, mm-hmm. in, oh, she was beaten up, yeah. Yeah. Um, and that that was, I suppose, the sort of reality of the area that that sort of thing could, could happen. Well, I... I um... We lived happily at Thamesbury for two or three years, but because we were so on the job, it was it was just uh, almost twenty four seven. You know, the work there was always something, and so for for a little while we moved off the site. We got permission to use our housing allowance, the same sum that was paying for our rent in the GLC flat. We um, we we got same housing allowance and diocese and permission to live off site. Given that my job wasn't so much in inverted commas parish and pastoral, it was a sector ministry, if you like. Um, and I mean, I did I still did exactly the same amount of hours at Thamesmead and, and mm. just had a longer day. And uh, one night I was in a meeting at Thamesmead. Annette was at home in Plumstead, little two up two down house and. Uh, she went out to get the washing in and uh, 
there was a, somebody in the garden who chased her indoors, beat her up, broke her mm. nose, mm. and um, caused her to miscarry. And uh, you know, I think I think he was a mad person. It wasn't mm. any. I don't think it was a rapist or mm. a burglar. I think he was just a mad person. Yeah, and they but... don't, don't think they ever found him. Mm. I, I mean. Obviously, you you had a child at this point, but um, yeah, was to be in in the end your only child. Yeah, must have been difficult to take, but but also something you you finally accepted. I mean, were you able to see sort of some sense in in what was obviously a tragic story at the time? Uh, not an enormous amount of sense. Mm. It, it actually, we had a, a rough experience with the police over it. Mm. You know, I mean, Annette was taken into hospital where. I think, and where they sort out her nose and maybe the miscarriage as well. Um, but when she was back, we when she was back home again, um, the the a senior policeman arrived, you know, to 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 interview us. Not so much sympathy uh, we felt as mm. um, you know we, we're very puzzled, you know, mm, and the mm. whoever it was, the senior of the two said, well, I. I can't understand it. He said, you know, this is the first time in 18 months that anything like this has happened on our patch. Mm. And he seemed more concerned about breaking his faultless record mm. than, than, than my wife being beaten mm. up. Mm. And um, I, I, I could have, um, well, never mind <laughs> what I would have done to him. <laughs> anyway, no, yeah. we got used to it. I mean, we, we continued trying to have children right up until about, 1980, I think. Mm. Uh, they're just nothing but miscarriages, really. But you, in the end, those, you know. Yeah, yeah. You, you. I suppose you, you have to sort of say, well, um, we, we will move on, and we'll. Yeah. Um, and in a way, you threw yourself into not just priesthood, but all kinds of things. I mean, yeah. I, yeah. I read the book and I'm sort of left just feeling exhausted by the amount you ended up well, doing. I Patrick. tell you, if it's any comfort, it, it was quite a, it was quite a piece of work writing. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry though if it's wearied you. <laughs> well, it's just um, you 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 were doing it, what sounded like about three part time jobs amounting yeah. to actually more like you know two yeah. full time jobs. Yeah, yeah. Um, because you not only were, were looking after your parish and so on. Um, but you uh, you got into broadcasting mm. as well, and you started doing a communications job for mm. the diocese and and all sorts of things. So just talk talk us a little bit about about that sort of period and and um, particularly the broadcasting because that obviously would come to define you know the latter years of your life as well. Yeah, well, it, it's important to say that one of one of my last mad ideas for Thamesmead, and one of the nicest things and the cleverest things that really most caring thing that was ever said to me, I think at Thamesmead was, Patrick, we're going to have to limit you to one idea a year. <laughs> this was from Jim Thompson, who, you know, you could tell he was going to be a bishop, but he was a lovely man and died only two years into his retirement, which really mm. was not fair. Mm. Um, but he he said not because they're not good ideas he said but because of the consequences <laughs> and I know exactly what he meant because any idiot can sit down and have a good idea but then what well mm. one of my last good ideas at Thamesmead was um, the whole of the estate was cabled because it it was quite low-lying land it was in the shadow of Shooter's Hill mm. and therefore television from Croydon Crystal Palace couldn't easily reach us so the whole estate was cabled by uh, rediffusion and for years I'd wondered whether we could have community television 
you know, on the site. And one day I went to find out whether we could or not. And Rediffusion said, no, you can't. And I said, why? They said, the government won't allow it. And even if they did, you couldn't afford it. But they said, did you know they're looking for six mad people to start community radio stations on cables? And I think the closing date is tomorrow. <laughs> so I raced back to Thamesweed, rang the Home Office and said, rang the Home Office and said I'm applying for one of these licenses. Um, could you hold it open until, you know, the first class post could get to you? And I, there wasn't time to talk to anyone about it. I just wrote a side of A4, typed it up, sent it off, forgot all about it. And to my horror, six months later, got a license <laughs> <laughs> and a bill for 1,000 and something quid. And, and that's how I, how I sort of... Um, uh, fell into it yeah. fell into it yeah yeah but it, and, and it grew up into a real radio station eventually. oh yes absolutely and yeah yeah and uh, i mean i mean fast forwarding a bit uh you know you you continue to get experience you ended up in a job in communications for the mm -hmm. church of england which led on to doing some some training as well again yep. in in broadcasting uh, and eventually being involved in probably one of the most significant religious radio programs uh, of the 1980s Priestland's progress um, but for those who maybe aren't familiar with that especially our international audience on podcast um, tell us about that and, and who you were working with and what what that was all about it's it's all somebody called Chris Reese's fault <laughs> he was a tutor on the Cambridge radio course he was a full-time uh, radio producer across radio two and radio four in the 80s and um he and Gerald Priestland, who was a religious affairs correspondent, said, why don't we make a programme about the Christian faith? Because we make assumptions all the time about what people know, what they think, what they believe. And we really don't know. Wouldn't it be fun to do it? And so the, the idea was born of 13 three-quarter hour programmes. Um, and we decided, uh, or hijack really Gerald Priestland into being both the subject and the object of the uh, mm. of the program which probably you know some thoughtful producers would run a mile from because he we used him as as the pilgrim mm. and he went to every we, and we sketched out 13 subject areas which he should you know immerse himself in mm. and and he I think they did about 100 or more interviews Mm. Um, they'd be about half an hour long and these 50 hours of broadcasting were condensed down to 13 three-quarter hour programs and and they were they were hugely detailed yeah Gerald Priestland was a a journalist to his fingertips he'd been the BBC's Washington correspondent he'd mm. worked in Vietnam covering mm. the Vietnam War he'd worked in India I think as well I mean there was and he was passionate about English and passionate about broadcasting and journalism you know his his um oh he had a marvelous thing on Saturday mornings uh, yours faithfully yes which was fantastically mm. popular mm. and um so yeah. he, he was in a way, you know, a, a well-known figure in broadcasting yeah. at this point. Yes, and a trusted person. Indeed. And, 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 and this was going to be going out at, a, you know, a good, a decent hour in the radio schedule. Yeah. And, and it reached, I mean, hundreds of thousands of people, if not it, millions. It multiplied the Radio 4 audience on a Sunday night by a factor of four times. Gosh. And, and uh, a, a subsequent person who produced me on pause for thought he 
he became a radio producer because of Friesen's progress. Mm. He used to dash home from college. I don't know what he was studying to listen to the weekday afternoon repeat. And that propelled him into, uh, you know, radio. And it propelled at least 10 people into ordination, apparently. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and, and, and it's fair to say that it was a, a pioneering sort of show because yes, it, 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 it didn't sort of, it wasn't just a yet another stuffy bishop telling you about the history of no, Christianity. We, we made very sure that we didn't interview stuffy bishops. <laughs> that, that's why, I mean, it was very strange. This was another, shall I do it? Shall I, shall I not? And unusually for me, I said no three times to Chris. He kept asking me if I'd be his researcher for the series. And I kept saying no. And it, it was a very sort of biblical story, really. Yet a third time he asked me. And yet a third time I, I said, no. He said, why do you keep saying no? And I said, because I have this wild idea. You're looking for someone who's organized, who, who thinks in straight lines, who is um, you know, tidy and um, you know, and all of this. And all. He said, and I'm none of those things, I said. He said, why do you think I keep asking you? It's because you're not any of those things that I want you to come and work. He, he, he may have told me that a previous person had had a nervous breakdown. <laughs> <laughs> I, think I found that out after the event. You kept but that anyway, one quiet, this, this was a dream because, yeah. I mean, I'm not so good at theology that I haven't got lots and lots of questions to mm. ask, you know. Mm. So I asked lots and lots of questions and we devised this, um, you know, in terms of, uh, I was very struck by a, a book about how they teach th- theology at Harvard. Mm. And they had learned from the faculty of law who used to just teach law and then, and then, you know, then go uh, from stuffy books mm. and then look at real life. They turn that on its head. Let's look at real life and then see how the law bears on it. Mm. And the theology people picked up on this and said, let's not teach it in a stuffy academic mm. way. Let's look at life. Mm. Let's, ha- let's see how theology and yeah. doctrine and all of that uh, bears down on it. And and that was the, that was what we were hoping yeah. to do. And it had this extraordinary response. I mean, you read what's through about seventeen thousand letters. letters. <laughs> yeah, response. we got so many letters. We got a shelf full of books, little blue books of an improving nature, <laughs> tried to set us straight about Christianity. <laughs> and and um, but Gerald wanted me to screen out for him all the letters that he thought needed a personal and pastoral response from him. Mm which he attended to personally and pastorally. So that, that was why yeah. I fetched up reading all these letters and ones which seemed to call for, a, you know, a caring response yeah. um, rather than what a nice job you made of that or how on earth could you have, interview Spike Milligan? <laughs> That's another <laughs> story. And um, he, he, he worked at all those letters, yeah, the, work, the ones yeah. that needed a pastoral response. Yeah. He attended to personally. Yeah. That was the man really um, interesting i mean there's much more that could be said about your further exploits in broadcasting you were involved <laughs> in uh, chilton radio and then local bbc radio and you did various outside broadcasts from the green belt festival and uh, you know the, the there was one episode where you just managed to get a broadcast out by the skin of your teeth uh, that yeah. i seem to recall and yeah but but so we'll, we'll have to skirt around that for the moment because i do want to get to clowning as okay. well which and of course the, the the cover of your book, a room full of elephants, has a picture of a clown on the front cover. And um, the old elephant. And the old elephant. Um, 
But why, why clowning? What, where, how, did, how did you end up being one of the few priests who gets to dress up as a clown occasionally okay. in church? Um, the, the Bishop of Hartford, who in, in about 1980 or so, uh, Peter Mumford, he rang up one day, as p- bishops occasionally do. <laughs> Patrick, he said, I want you to go on the mid-service clergy course uh, four weeks in St George's House, Windsor. I said, yes, of course. I didn't, didn't ask any about it. Of course I didn't. I just <laughs> said yes. And, you know, um, and of course, there's a catch, as there is with everything. <laughs> the catch in this case was that everyone who was on the course, before they went, had to say what they were going to research and write ten or 12,000 word paper on it. And that had to be in by a certain date before the course started. And that would, together with all the stuff we had from St. George's House, would form part of the study material. So, I don't know, six or eight weeks before the course started, um, we were asked with our partners, wives, whoever, to go and spend a day at St George's House meeting the staff um, and find out a bit more about the course and so on. And uh, so I was shown into this study. <laughs> this, my tutor was a, this very tall Methodist called John, Dr John Long. Huge, imposing bookline study, see, and... Um, sat me down and he said how's how's the project going i said what <laughs> he said well he said you were supposed to be doing oh yes i said well and he said well what were you going to study i said the church and communications but i've gone off that i don't think the church is interested actually and there was this terrible silence and he said almost in panic mode he said well what about music you know because time was running out mm. i said well i play the 11 or 12 string guitar but i don't read music so that's not going to work and there was this long, deepening silence into which I suddenly heard myself say, I know, I've always wanted to look at the connection between clowns, fools and the gospel. He got very excited. I was very surprised because I'd never thought any such thing ever. <laughs> this was pure gift. That's all I could say. This was God say, how about doing this, you know? Oh, he said, no one's ever done that before. Tell me how I can help. So luckily, because I can write very fast, I, I did about ten or 12,000 words and got it in, you know, just in time. And, and um, as a result, I mean, I, that's how I met Roly Bain, mm. the real clown priest. I mean, mm. I'm only a sort of half clown priest, really. But he'd just written an essay uh, or preached a sermon at Cudston about clowns and fools. So we got on like a house on fire and he he told me who I should go and see people who were training clowns, you know, and people who worked in pantomime and so on. And I did a lot of very quick reading up about Shakespeare and fools in Elizabethan times and and fools in society down the ages. Um, and because I, I had I done yes, by then I'd done a sociology diploma while at, while at Thamesmead and um which which got me into all sorts of interesting studies. And um, so th- that had been a huge help. It's all yeah. preparatory. Yeah, obviously. yeah. And, and, and um, what, what, I mean, obviously there is the verse about, you know, being a fool for Christ yeah. in the Bible. This, yeah, this is taking goodness. it very, very literally, yeah. dressing up as a clown. What are some of the, um, you know, abiding memories or one abiding memory at least of, of you performing and and, but also, you know, bringing the gospel to people in, in perhaps ways that they would never have yeah. of it before. We, we did quite a few visits to prisons and um, 
one of, oh, I mean, going a little bit back, as a result of Rowley and I meeting up and my re writing this Gospel Fool thing, this was picked up by an extraordinary organisation in the States. Um, and uh, they run, or in those days, they may still do, I don't know, they ran every year a clown, mime, puppet, dance and storytelling course, uh, you know, I think a week or a workshop, a week or a fortnight in, in Washington, D.C. in August. Um, and as a result of my writing this paper, I got asked... Uh, to go and do two lectures <laughs> at this course. I think about three people came, you know. <laughs> but for this, they they paid Annette's flight, my flight, Stephen's flight to the States and back. Wow. And we bolted on another two or three weeks and, yeah, you know, went not. to see friends and re relatives in America. And across America then, there were 3,000 clown ministry groups. Mm. 3,000. Okay. So I learned a bit about that. And as a result, we tried to organise... We tried to get a group together in this country called the Holy Fools, which we did. Mm. It still sort of exists and, mm. and it, you know, it still has a website and there's still clowning done, which is great. Now, what was your question? Well, oh, any, yes. any, one, any one significant event. Yeah, yeah. moments? Okay, we, we did, we did uh, shows in, in prisons and hospitals and places like that, as well as churches. And um, we, we were doing a show uh, in Wandsworth. And because I lived sort of 30, 40 miles out of London, I couldn't actually justify the time to go and take part in sketches. I'm hopeless at sketches because I can't remember lines. I'm much happier improvising, which is the ruin of sketches. So <laughs> I said, just leave me three minutes and I'll see what I can do. So I turned up with my, in my sort of clown gear and uh, let into the prison. And one of our uh, members was a fire eater, still is, I think. And... Um, she said, oh, can you go and get me a drink of water? This was during the show. Right. This was happening in the prison chapel. So I walked across the stage, um, and uh, which you're not supposed to do, and found a glass and uh, a tap in the vestry, because it was happening in the prison mm. chapel. And my eye was caught by a bucket underneath the... Uh, and probably because the sink leaked. Mm, mm. So I filled the glass of water, put it in the bucket, walked back across the stage. I didn't say anything. And as I walked across, people started laughing. Bear <laughs> in mind, this is a prison. So when it came to my three-minute spot, I just fooled around with this bucket. I started mm. with it as a baby sitting on a, you know, a potty. Mm. And I then became a, a toddler who picks a bucket up and plays soldiers and mm. gets it stuck on his head and so on, you know, seven ages of buckets, really. <laughs> and the more I did, and I didn't say anything, the more I did, the more the prisoners laughed. And I was too close to it. And I said afterwards in the pub when, we, when they let us out, I said, what was that all about? And I'd be, bear in mind, I'd been a prison visitor while mm. at, at mm. Lincoln. So I knew about slopping out. and all. They said, you fool, which I took as a compliment, you, you've, you've helped people to laugh at something which is profoundly unfunny and awful. Mm. You've helped them to laugh at um, slopping out yeah. and having to have a bucket in your cell overnight and slop mm. it out in the morning. And, uh, you know, this reminds me of the marvellous medieval joke, because <laughs> most jokes are probably medieval, really, uh, of a guy who's idly playing dice and, and death arrives in the room you know to have a game of dice as in dicing with death mm. and the guy who's who's sitting there with his dice looks up sees it's death and says oh death i thought you'd be thinner <laughs> see now a little giggle if you can laugh at death 
if you can laugh at slopping out, it loses its power over you. Yes. You know, how did the Jews cope with Nazi, mm. you know, pogroms and the death camps and so on? When they, when they were able to do, do so, they used humour. They mm. used music as well and storytelling, I've no doubt. And they even put God on trial in one of the concentration mm. camps, and found, camp, camps and found him guilty. Mm. on all mm. charges mm. and um you know it's it's amazing that the power yes that something on the surface that, yeah. that looks just like entertainment clowning but actually it can it can reach people in ways that a sermon or oh yes other forms yes, of ministry absolutely. can't um yeah, i think across a lot of doorways in yes. anglican churches i wouldn't speak for other ones probably in latin um, <laughs> abandon laughter at all you who enter here or something like that no, yes we're not known we're no. not known for a laugh in church one of my <laughs> favorite responses after i saw Fo holy fool's mission somewhere in darkest kent there was a very old lady you know at the door because i did the sermon mm. and it was pretty riotous mm. i got them to do all sorts of wild things like standing on their pews and becoming seagulls very mm. noisily and my <laughs> wife um she said I just wanted to thank you, she said. I said, why? That's very kind. But why? She said, to, to, for reminding me that it's all right to be uninhibited in church. Mm. What a gift. Mm. Wonderful. What a wonderful response that was. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought I'd blown it, frankly. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I mean, laughter. You know, I, I remember when I was broadcasting in, in Hertfordshire and Bedfordshire, we weren't allowed to play... Uh, you know, the Monty Python song, you know, um, always look on the bright side of life. Um, you know, I, I think laughter is, is a gift of God. Yes. Question about that. Humor is a gift of God. Storytelling, mm. music. There's so many ways in which the gospel can be shared. Mm. Mm. Um, well, um, you've, you've shared it through through that ministry you've you've shared it through your personal ministry uh through the broadcasting you've done as well patrick and i wish i had more time because i would have got the story of the pantomime horse that got blessed by the archbishop of canterbury out of you oh tell well. people to buy the book yeah, exactly i was just about to say that but if you want to find out how patrick got blessed as the front end of a pantomime horse uh, by the Archbishop of Canterbury, you'll have to get hold of the book, A Room Full of Elephants, My First 80 Years in the Church by Patrick Forbes, who's been my guest on the profile today. It's been absolutely fantastic catching up with you, Patrick. Thank you so much. Um, and and your your legacy will continue for a long time because I know that Premier uh, are hoping to to rebroadcast uh, the some of these classic travellers' tales. Even my own wife was a was was a guest on on your mm. travellers' tales. Yeah, as Didn't a young get down to you though, did I? As a young ordinand <laughs> in the United Reformed Church at the time, but um, it's 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 been an absolute pleasure to catch up and um, all the very best. And you know, perhaps we'll check in in another eighty years' time, Patrick. That'd be great. Yes, I'm looking forward to it. <laughs> See what's happened next. Um, and thank you for your reminder about the elephants in the room that do still exist in the church. Um, I, I have to say that the book ends on a serious note because you talk, you know, in the end about the future of the Church of England. Mm. Um, and and I think I think there's some really important things you have to say about the need for church unity and sort of getting rid of some of the baggage, perhaps mm. in order to, to make ourselves writer. ready yeah, for the future. But again, do find out more by getting hold of the book, A Room Full of Elephants, Patrick Forbes. It's published by Bohan Publishing. 
And I'll make sure there are links from today's show. If you're listening via podcast, that's uh, the easy way to get hold of it as well. That's at premierchristianradio.com forward slash the profile. But for now, thank you very much, Patrick Forbes, for being my guest on the profile this week. Thank you, Justin. Been fun. Do come back again. Same time next week, we'll have another guest telling us about their life, faith and ministry.